millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... We're living life on the edge of the green belt with John Grindrod and his latest book, Outskirts. John Grindrod grew up on the last road in London on Croydon's new Addington housing estate, surrounded by the green belt. He is the author of Concretopia, a journey around the rebuilding of post-war Britain, described by The Independent on Sunday as a new way of looking at modern Britain. He has written for The Guardian, The Financial Times, The Big Issue, and has worked as a bookseller and publisher for over 25 years. And he runs the popular website DirtyModernScoundrel.com. And John's latest book, Outskirts, Living Life on the Edge of the Green Belt, we're going to be talking about today. John, welcome back to Little Atoms. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, so what's the story behind Outskirts? So in Concretopia, I sort of told the story of the building in that post-war period, the post-war rebuilding. And I realised that there was a whole kind of thing that I didn't talk about having grown up where I did we sort of faced onto fields that I didn't realize were the green belt at the time and it was only in the research for Concretopia that I realized there was something going on with the countryside as well as the built up bit and so I wanted to kind of try and tell that story as well and what they are kind of quite complementary stories it was quite exciting to sort of discover that there was something that held these two seemingly completely different things together and there's also a sort of personal element to it as well my parents grew up in central London London and then they moved out to this housing estate and I realised that their story sort of perfectly mapped what I wanted to try and tell in the book as well that kind of conflict between town and country so and indeed I think that's worth reiterating that point that people who are familiar with Concretopia might think oh yeah he's written a, a nature book now but the Greenbelt is as much of a part of the reconstruction of post-war Britain as tower blocks and motorways isn't it oh yeah absolutely they are kind of and I think actually quite often you find people that who defend the Greenbelt will quite happily criticise the kind of rebuilding of towns and cities, not realising that they are kind of inextricably linked and they're both a reaction against that 1930s sort of suburban sprawl. And in a way quite often the sort of your defenders of the Greenbelt tend to be people who live in those kind of 30s houses and they actually, you know, are, were the problem. They were the reason the Greenbelt came into existence really. So I think that irony is quite, quite amusing. Well we're, talk- we're talking about it there as, as part of the you know, post-war reconstruction 
construction, but the idea of the green belt itself has a longer history, doesn't it? Where does the term come from? So the term comes from Octavia Hill, who founded the National Trust, and she was a housing campaigner in the mid-late Victorian period. She did loads of work looking at kind of housing conditions for the poor, and she was also then became very interested in open spaces and the lack of open spaces in London, where she was where she was operating. And particularly, she was interested in the fact that she did this research that, that it turned out to be that, that in West London you had eight times more green space if you lived in West London than you did in East London. So if you were poor, you not only had bad housing, but you also didn't have any outside space or any green space, and you couldn't do anything like that. So she was obsessed with, and there were actually a lot of organisations at that time, uh, organisations like the Ladies Sanitary Association, who would sort of encourage sort of taking people out into the countryside, and there was that sort of idea of the city being kind of dirty and sort of very bad for you and uh, polluted and that the countryside was a sort of balm for that and that there was a sort of spiritual dimension to it as well as sort of slightly religious dimension. So so Octavia Hill was sort of part of that whole movement but she came up with the name the Green Belt when she was thinking about you could have a sort of road bypassed around London almost like a ring road around you know the much smaller London that was the case in the sort of 1880s and she thought the Green Belt would be like a big sort of verge that sort of went beside that road and that was her idea of what a green belt might be so what the green belt would become was entirely different from what she envisaged but she came up with a brilliant name there's another side to that as well the idea of the countryside as a balm in that people that actually live and work the countryside see people encroaching from the cities and i mean like not people moving there but just like day trippers and things as these sort of bumbling townies who don't really understand how the country works Oh, absolutely. And that is kind of one of the things. By the time you get to the sort of 20s and 30s, you just have like sort of all of the media kind of superstars of the age who are on, you know, the BBC or they're writing columns for newspapers are all absolutely on the side of, you know, the countryman versus the townsman. And uh, that's sort of always how it's represented. And the townsman is always this kind of idiot who kind of comes into the countryside and pulls out flowers and doesn't close gates and trashes it and builds houses. And, you know, it's a destructive kind of evil, pernicious force. And the countryman is sort of always portrayed as this kind of amazing spiritual being, like the sort of green man who has almost grown out of the earth and is, you know, is some kind of amazing protector of the landscape. So you just end up with these incredibly vitriolic books and articles and broadcasts in that period from these people, like Cyril Joad and A.G. Street. They both sort of were typical of, of these writers who characterised people who lived in cities who were beginning to kind of move into sort of rambling, rambling with sort of a thing that sort of took off in the late 19th century and became sort of a big thing by the 20s and 30s and there were lots of kind of big sort of fights to protect ramblers rights and to open walking ways and that kind of thing and all of these people that were, that were doing it all these urban people were just characterised as wreckers So staying with the between the wars period from Octavia Hill's idea how does the idea of the green belt develop and we should introduce here again one of the heroes of Concretopia Patrick Abercrombie. Yeah, absolutely. So he is one of the founders, or he founds the Campaign for the Protection of Rural England uh, in the mid-20s. And then he's also Britain's sort of preeminent town planner. At that point, when he founds the CPRE, he's not as kind of established as a town planner as he would become. By the mid-1940s, he's writing town plans for the rebuilding of London and Glasgow and Hull and Plymouth. You know, he's doing all of these giant things. But at that stage, uh, he's interested as much the countryside and you know how to protect it from so he's he's very much looking at solutions he's not sort of demonizing people in the way and he 
it's interesting reading his writings of that period. He is just a much kind of kinder figure than these kind of slightly demonising, hectoring voices on the radio. And in that period, he is kind of quite sympathetic to ramblers and he's sympathetic to kind of people from the city who might want to go out into the country. And he's trying to think of a way of trying to make the two things compatible and work together. And so as part of his job as a town planner, he sort of tries to come up with solutions, ways that can move on that argument from Octavia Hill of people having no green space in the centre of towns and cities. And then how can we how can we actually give people that space in towns and he's got that whole thing about building new towns, moving people out of cities so that you can create more green space in the centre of town because you've got fewer people. And then also the people that live in new towns have got more green space because you can build an entirely new town from scratch and you can you can make it as lovely as you want. And then those towns are going to be housed beyond a green belt. That's his idea. That's the thing that he wants to happen. So these satellite towns will be self-supporting. They won't be for commuters coming into London. They'll, be, they'll have their own industry. And the green belt will sort of cushion London from these kind of new developments and won't be built on. And we should say as well, a contemporary to this, you've also got a a want of, not from like official channels, but people wanting to get out into the countryside. So you've got the, the, the Kinder Scout mass trespass, for instance, happens. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you get kind of quite a lot of 20th century sort of folk history really comes about in this period. You know, Kinder Scout is one of those, one of those campaigns that, you know, people get arrested, they get dragged off, you know, they go to prison and there's, you know, court cases. There's, you know, a really big kind of legacy to that. Initially looks as if it's been completely crushed as a, as a kind of protest about the lack of kind of open pathways for people from cities if they want to go for a walk in the country. But actually what happens is within 20 years, the government is is opening up, is forcing landowners to open up walking tracks and pathways for people so that they can actually sort of ramble. And that is a, that's a kind of an amazing change around. One of my favourite figures in both books is Dame Evelyn Sharp, who is the first female permanent secretary at the Ministry of Housing and Local Government. She's the person that Sir Humphrey in yesterday minister is supposedly based on because she's fantastically manipulative and clever and sort of always sort of much brighter than the ministers that she's serving. She is very interesting kind of in her, she writes quite a dry book about her job but one of the things she talks about is how the ministry's sort of has this tireless job of opening up these pathways through the country and nobody really ever talks about it. It's one of those kind of quite quiet things that happens that gets ignored a bit really in history because it is, you know, these tracks aren't used by a lot of people all the time but they are vital if you want to actually open up the landscape for people to be able to walk through and enjoy and explore and get from A to B. And obviously you've got London, for instance, is is expanding. So you've got, you know, expanding that into metro land. Normally these things follow the, the train line. So you've got, you know, the metro metropolitan line. You've got the, the Piccadilly lines again, which we talked about in the in the previous interview, the Piccadilly line expanding out and housing following those stations. Yeah, absolutely. And that's happening all the way around London. It's happening all the way around all the big cities in Britain as well. You know, it's happening in Glasgow. It's happening in Manchester. It's happening in Bristol. So this is a problem that isn't contained to London, but actually 
actually, because London, even at that stage, is such a sort of giant city and is growing very, very quickly, the effect of it is quite devastating to um, you get you get a lot of farmers selling off land to these sort of developers and, you know, railway companies. I mean, it's interesting that the Metropolitan Railway Company actually developed their own housing estates around their own stations after a while because they saw other people just sweeping in and making all this money whenever they built a station. And in the end, they were like, well, we're going to, well, why do we do that? So they did it themselves, you know. And so there's a kind of complicity among people building the railway and transport network and the people that are building these houses that go round them as gradually suburbia sort of stretches out and um, that becomes a massive worry for people and for somebody like Patrick Abercrombie he saw that as much more the sort of villain of the piece than the townsman kind of going out and putting out flowers and you know not leaving gates open you know for him that's the real kind of issue is these, these kind of suburban sprawl so there is a sort of big change around in what the people's anxiety and gradually you see suburbia in literature and in the arts and in culture being more and more demonised um, and you know this idea that people who live in suburbia are kind of small minded idiots who kind of you know you know you in someone, someone like Ian Forster you know you, you sort of see this you see this thing you see, you see it in loads of literature uh, from this period and uh, Well I was going to say this obviously sort of carries on not just in literature but in you know in, in the architectural writing as well Ooh. because Ian Nairn's famous outrage article in architectural review is obviously about this very thing. Yeah, absolutely. So by the 50s, you've got a lot of um, critics like Ian Nairn, you have landscape architects uh, like Sylvia Crow, you have architects and planners like Lionel Brett, who are all criticising what's happening to the outside of towns and cities. And they're, they're looking at not only the buildings that are kind of straggling out, but also all the attendant kind of nonsense that goes with them. So the power lines, the signage, the roads, the verges, fences, all that stuff. Ian then is sort of outraged, literally, and writes this sort of amazing sort of tract about how, you know, one in, you know, the extremes of one town can be blend seamlessly into the extremes of the next one, and you don't really know where you are, because everywhere looks the same, because everywhere looks awful. All the outskirts of towns look terrible. So, you know, I think Nen really opens up that discussion, because even though there are planners like, you know, Lionel Brett, who are writing about this stuff, they don't have the kind of rhetorical power and the, the sheer kind of gutsiness of somebody like Nen, uh, who can get his ideas across in this really vivid and sort of exciting and dynamic and explosive way. And then you have people like Sylvia Crow, who is a landscape architect, whose job it is to then try and make those things better. And I love, the, you know, reading uh, her stuff and sort of seeing the things that she did. You know, she worked for kind of lots of different organisations over, over time, like the Forestry Commission. And her thing was always about, you know, planting trees. You know, you needed to kind of work out you know how much yeah she did so yeah she became famous because she was the landscape architect for uh, Harlow which was one of the first new towns and she introduced all the green wedges in Harlow which is a sort of famous kind of landscape bit of Harlow and uh, they're still kind of flourishing today as a as a kind of lovely bit of landscape architecture so she's incredibly influential she's she is the sort of big figure in landscape architecture really I mean it's interesting that, that Jeffrey Jellicoe sort of has become this kind of figure who people sort of talk about as the big, you know, the big name. But actually, uh, I think she is more influential and more kind of an interesting figure, really.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to John Grindrod. We're talking about his latest book, Outskirts, Living Life on the Edge of the Green Belt. Now, this might seem a bit of a, a weird question this late into the interview, but I want to talk about what a green belt actually is. Because <laughs> you mentioned throughout the book numerous places that don't have green belts. So, for instance, Norwich or Ipswich, a town's my own hometown of Leicester, doesn't have a green belt. But if you look on the map, Norwich and Ipswich are places that are, you know, very much surrounded by country. They couldn't be more rural if they tried. So, what is the function of a green belt? So the point of a green belt is that it's to stop a town. It's to stop a town spreading out forever. It's to stop towns merging together. So if you, you know, Leeds and Bradford is a good example of towns that sort of merge together as one as one sort of huge entity. And actually there is a green belt around there, but that green belt sort of came along too late to stop that happening. But the idea is, is that if the green belts had happened a bit earlier, those towns would still be separated. So uh, Wales has only got one green belt, which is the teeny tiniest bit of green belt in the whole country and and it's between Cardiff and Newport and it's to stop them merging together in the same way that, that has happened in Leeds and Bradford. So the idea is really that when Abercrombie was writing his plan for London the, um, <laughs> the architects had this kind of amazing job of having to drive out in their cars to the edge of London and just see where the houses ran out and they just marked down on a map where the houses ran out and that was where the green belt started so it's an incredibly kind of quite a basic uh, it was a basic way of researching it and it was also quite a basic tool for stopping development. They allowed for what they called rounding off so you could build an estate uh, you could sort of finish building an estate so an estate like New Addington where I grew up that was built in the 19th started being built in the 1930s by a private developer by the 50s and 60s became a sort of uh, a council development and they were allowed to kind of f- expand it and finish it off round it off and um so but the idea of the green belts is that basically housing is the thing that you're not really allowed to build in the green belt so you you can still build infrastructure so you can still build the m25 around london you can still build power stations you can still build you know government research facilities and that kind of thing you can uh, have landfill sites you know industry and infrastructure you're absolutely allowed to have in the green belt and actually getting permission to do those things is quite easy compared to getting permission to build housing it's become more easy over the years to build housing but not in a strategic way just in a kind of slightly kind of sneaky way really so using london as an example again let's talk about how the green belt around london develops because there's two things that are going on first of all there's various different plans for a green belt that keeps sort of changing it might be further and further distance out also these plans are being put together by by all of the home counties individually so some of them are, are more you know ahead of others and they take years and years and years to develop wherein london's population is changing it's growing out all of the time so tell us how London gets its green belt. So London gets its green belt, yeah, as you say, in a really kind of weird piecemeal kind of higgledy-piggledy fashion. So you've got places like Middlesex where they're very advanced in, in trying to create green belt and so at the beginning of the 1930s they've already earmarked a load of land that they're not going to it's never going to get built on and that's a sort of proto bit of Greenbelt by the late 30s a Greenbelt Act has been passed by the London County Council although they've sponsored an act uh, a government act and the idea of that is to preserve some of this land that Greenbelt the 1938 one and the sort of 30s Greenbelt that's built up around London is tiny compared to what Abercrombie proposes only 10 years later in his in his um, plans for London so it's interesting 
interesting how in a very short space of time it goes from oh we can achieve this quite small thing oh aren't we daring oh look all of the local councils are all doing this stuff to suddenly we can do this huge thing look at this enormous amount of land we could protect look at this enormous kind of shape of London that we can affect by actually preventing building and and then there's an interesting thing about population because London's population in 1939 is about uh, the same as the population now but by the end of World War II it it's lost half a million people and by 1983 it's lost two million of those people have moved out of London they've either moved to new towns they've moved out to kind of villages or kind of existing towns they've moved to expanded towns they've just moved around the country and London only really starts to kind of repopulate from the 1980s onwards Uh, so there's a very interesting thing that happens there where suddenly the pressure to build in London goes away for quite a long period of time and it goes away in the period where the green belts are being fixed and set and so by that point a problem sort of emerges in that they are creating a green belt for a retreating population but that that retreat isn't a continuous event and actually when that tide changes suddenly we've ended up with quite a different situation with the green belt now well the the other thing as well in which we've got a different situation is when we're talking about as you said someone like patrick abercrombie envisaging this it feels part of that sort of egalitarian festival of britain national health service mood that was present but there becomes a point where the green belt starts to feel more for the people that actually live in the green about already in their nice big sort of stockbroker Tudor houses and um, this is around the time we get the rise of the NIMBY so tell us about the NIMBY. Yeah so the NIMBY is although the name NIMBY doesn't come around till the 1970s and N comes from the US oddly enough from a petrochemicals company who have been uh, feeding chemicals into the water supply of a local village uh, called what they called? Love Canal Love Canal that's right yeah yeah, yeah. Which famously um, Al Gore got into trouble for apparently saying that he um, he had something to do with when he. Oh, when I he didn't know that. that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's an okay. Story. And um, so that's where NIMBY comes from, and it's basically a, th- a phrase that comes up from the PR agencies of lots of petrochemical companies who are going after the protesters who have been saying, look, there are all these kind of birth defects, and people have kind of got all these illnesses as a result of these chemicals, and they start to say, oh, look, all these people saying they don't want anything in their back yard and that's where NIMBY comes from as a phrase but it's interesting that the phenomena that we recognise as NIMBY is much obviously is a much older phenomenon and and almost as soon as you start to get the green belt being set around London in the 50s you get NIMBYs you get people kind of you know very keen not to have things built around their area and, and that kind of thing and you know there were loads and loads of small cases of that but you know these days it means all sorts of different things to different people you know it can mean that you're an environmental protester or it can mean that you are literally just a kind of selfish bugger who doesn't want some you know perfectly reasonable thing to happen so as a phrase it's ended up becoming completely useless because it no longer describes the kind of small-minded little figure that we kind of think it describes because lots of people that self 
declare as a NIMBY these days are actually equally as likely to be environmental campaigners with a legitimate cause. I interviewed a, a fascinating woman called Christina Kenworthy who had been fighting a golf course that was being built in the, in Surrey and she was trying to stop it because it was going to go over ancient grassland. So the interesting thing about the Green Belt is that its greenness is sort of a state of mind in a way. You know, it doesn't actually matter what that greenness is. And so it, the Green Belt doesn't mind if it's ice age woodland or ancient pasture land or, you know, incredibly rare grassland or chemically fueled golf course grass or, you know, all that kind of amazing kind of weird plastic rubberized mesh that people put into the ground for car parks or whatever. All of those things are quite happily green enough for the Green Belt. The Green Belt protection won't stop any of those things happening. And so for her, the issue was that uh, you could protest as long as you liked about building on the Green Belt bit, you know, the, the clubhouse, the, you know, the road, that kind of thing. But actually, because environmental concerns are not addressed by the Green Belt, the Green Belt just, it likes the colour green. That's as much as we can say about the Green Belt as a kind of environmental force. And it's all these other things, like if you're a site of special scientific interest or you're an area of outstanding natural beauty, those things are all about kind of protecting actual landscape for the value of that landscape. And Green Belt doesn't do that. So for people trying to protect different areas in the Green Belt, it can be very difficult because sometimes you're not protecting it from housing, you're protecting it from something else that is green, but you end up with this weird sort of green-on-green violence happening. And indeed, you, you mentioned throughout the book that there is, you know, we, this idea that we think it's all fields is, is not necessarily the case, and often there are industrial sites or infrastructure sites and things like that. But really I want to talk about some of the things that go on in the green belt as well as agriculture and leisure and golf obviously <laughs> um i'm talking about dogging you're talking about dogging yeah well it was interesting sort of quite early on one of the first people i sort of met with when i was researching the book were people from the campaign for the protection of rural england and i was expecting you know and i had the very serious brilliant meeting with them that i was expecting you know they had loads of amazing reports and data going back decades and all that sort of stuff and um <laughs> so we had that meeting and just as i was getting up to leave there was a guy, sort of guy hanging around and then he went oh um I really think you should look at dogging I kind of went off slightly embarrassed and um I thought oh god even the CPRE thing this is a thing worth looking at I was really surprised actually and um yeah it's sort of an interesting phenomenon so that is kind of early you know it's pretty, probably only like about 15 20 years old as a phenomena I mean it kind of overlaps I guess with sort of old gay cruising sites which are kind of have been there for like a really long time for sort of quite a different reason in a way because, you know, having only been decriminalised 50 years ago, you know, gay sex was always this kind of slightly secretive, furtive activity and very difficult to meet other gay men to have sex with. So you could sort of understand how gay cruising grounds came about and quite often they are in the Green Belt because they are places, they are sort of out in the country but very near town, so they are the kind of, you know, the sort of parks on the edges of places. And dogging seems to have been kind of particularly fueled by the rise of the internet and now social media and so dogging sites are sort of promoted quite kind of actively online and you know which I was I did I hadn't realized was a thing that that happens a lot and um yeah that, that suddenly there are league tables of places where you know we've got the most dogging sites so depending Surrey on what, seems to be the place Surrey has got a lot yeah so there was a report saying that uh, a few years ago saying that there were 222 sort of known dogging sites in Britain and about 93 of them were in Surrey which was kind of amazing so and I wasn't really surprised coming from 
from you know Croydon that that was the case. There was one quite near where I grew up, uh, which I only sort of found out about in the research for the book, which was quite interesting. I didn't realise that was a dogging site, and he did know that there were gay cruising grounds and stuff. But I guess you know dogging is quite is quite a recent occurrence, you know. And um, you know when I was talking to one of the farmers that I spoke to, he was talking about how Facebook had meant that kids were able to come and do scramble biking around his field suddenly just spontaneously because they all would go oh you there's a way in you know he'd blocked it all up but somebody would find a way in and they'd all come down all on the same day and kind of ride round and I guess with dogging it's quite a similar thing you know that people sort of become aware of you know this place is really good for it I mean the hogs back uh, outside Guildford which is sort of one of you know Jane Austen's favourite places you know is kind of now a sort of well-known dogging hotspot. What would Darcy have thought? I'm Andy Miller, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So going back to that idea that, you know, the idea of the Greenbelt feels part of the post-war settlement, it's not surprising that once we get into, you know, the era of Thatcherism, succession of, you know, Secretary of State's the environment try to do something about it. It's perhaps more surprising, but then if we think about the NIMBY thing, not so, that a lot of the time the opposition to those loosening of those sort of restrictions comes from their own backbenchers. Yeah, and there's a real conflict, actually, that in a way the Tories have kind of created an impossible situation for themselves. And you can see the result of that now is the complete retreat from anyone ever wanting to say anything about the Green Belt other than, oh, we will protect the green belt in kind of very vague terms because there are all sorts of big problems that have come about since the 80s really for the conservative party one of which is a sort of hatred of you know the bit nanny state you know big planning all of the things that basically we think of with the green belt you know as part of that kind of post-war settlement of people trying to kind of you know do the best for the country in in a sort of centralized way Uh, so that is very much the opposite of what you know satirite ministers were keen on. But unfortunately for them, a lot of their backbenchers are people who represent those communities who would absolutely go bonkers, you know, if they knew that somebody was going to going to legislate to get rid of their local green belt. And um, as a result, there were all of these amazing clashes between ministers like Patrick Jenkin, who in 83 tries to get rid of the, you know, tries to kind of limit green belts. And he sort of says, oh, actually, if you've got a bit of a green belt that's surrounded by development, that can go. That's no longer a green belt. And he comes up with all these proposals at a Tory conference and is sort of virtually like run out of town by his, by you know his own party during the conference it's it's a sort of hilarious kind of mini farce really that he creates and then Nicholas Ridley who's like the next you know the next minister for housing after him he then says you know he's got a very similar thoughts as as Jenkin but he's he's a much kind of crueler operator and he's quite willing to kind of wind them all up and say you know well you know you're all sort of doing all this special pleading but people have got to live somewhere and then it emerges that he'd been protesting against somebody building something next to his Queen Anne rectory. So all of that then falls down and he, you know, just becomes a kind of laughing stock. Uh, and then by the end of the 80s, you've got Chris Patton saying, oh, actually, would it be really good if local authorities dealt with all the green belts? stuff and we didn't have to do that at all. That'd be brilliant. Wouldn't it local choice? You know, and it all becomes about local choice. And essentially what that means is, oh, thank God we don't have to think about the green belt anymore because they've had 10 years of those particular ministers being 
monstered by uh, their own backbenchers, and it's become this ridiculous scenario. And that government was obviously responsible for right to buy and selling off of social housing and the refusal to allow councils to build more social housing. One of a number of things that have contributed to the appalling housing crisis that we're all dealing with now. And bearing that in mind, how do we square a desire to maintain the Greenbelt when there's such a housing crisis? Does it not become trivial? I think the thing is, is that actually both things are sort of not trivial. Both things are incredibly important. But the one thing that's happened is the grown-ups in the room, the people that planned the Greenbelt, these planners who had strategic responsibility for large, big ideas, they've all been sort of pushed out, they've been made redundant, those posts don't exist anymore, you know, those bodies aren't really around. There's nobody to make those decisions. No one's listening to anyone who's sort of smaller than that, who's suggesting, you know, sensible things. And what happened with the Greenbelt initially was planners created this thing called White Land, which sat between the Greenbelt and your town. And White Land you could build on. You know, you weren't going to build on it straight away, but it was like a kind of slightly sort of store cupboard essentials if you were a town planner. You know, if you do need to build something somewhere on the edge of a town, or you've, you know, luckily we've saved some white land and you can build there. So gradually over time, people find out that this white land exists, developers lobby for it, you know, bits of it get eaten up by legitimate and, you know, sometimes frivolous development. And then um, what happens is by the time all of that white land's gone, so have the planners who created it. And now there's no one to do that. And I don't think there was ever a sort of end game where actually there would be, you know, once you'd used up that white land, that would be it. The idea would be that your planners would then go, okay, so the next lot of white land would be here. But there is no one to do that now. So that's the problem, really, is that for politicians, the Green Belt has become this kind of untamed monster that can destroy their careers in an instant if you accidentally say the wrong thing about it. Uh, So they don't want to get involved in it. So they won't make any big decisions. And the people that could make a big decision are no longer in post. There are none of these big planners to make those big strategic decisions. So we have this sort of slightly headless zombie staggering around London that isn't helping because, you know, bits of it aren't, you know, bits of it aren't brilliant. You know, of course, I I think the idea of the Green Belt is still really valid. I think actually it is a good idea to have, to protect that land from people just speculatively building all the way over it in a really careless and, and sort of hopeless way as was happening in the 1930s. Uh, but at the same time, you have to kind of manage that intelligently with, you know, actual people who are, you know, in dire straits, you know, and need somewhere to live. I mean, I would say also, you know, the collapse of social housing and the fact that we're not building all of that stuff is equally a massive problem. And so those things don't look like they're about to be solved anytime soon because everyone is still obsessed with the market being able to provide everything. And as we can see, as a result of, you know, these things going wrong over time, since those decisions to let the market make those decisions, we can see that's not working. And at the moment, still, there's no, it seems to be no desire to actually take those decisions away from the market and go, actually, no, I'm sorry, we do need somebody who can make it a more sensible and impartial decision on this sort of thing. Well, just to finish off on the actual Greenbelt there, I mean, you mentioned people no longer being in post. And while one doesn't like to gloat 
I have to point out that your your book is slightly out of date now because you do mention the role of now private citizen Gavin Barwell in this book. Yes, absolutely. Well, so he was um, so he would have been my local MP in uh, in Croydon as well as being housing minister, and he has been very pro green belt, but also kind of quite slippery, and so it's very difficult to quite tell exactly where he was going to go with any of his decisions about the green belt, and um, I think also the tension between him and Javid who you know Javid is much more hawkish I think Barwell was much more kind of trying to kind of protect the green belt so that kind of conflict you know now that Barwell is out of the way I think you know I think we will probably end up with bits of the green belt just being kind of going to the wall because I don't think the people that are now going to be in charge of it are going to are going to kind of be that sympathetic to cause to protect it and as local councils have run out of money they are quite willing to kind of sell off little bits quietly of of their green belt and of their land around towns just to get by and make money. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. I'm talking about outskirts, living life on the edge of the green belt with John Grindrod. And John, tell us again about your personal connection to the green belt. So, uh, I, yes, I didn't really realise that all the countryside that was outside our council house when I was growing up was actually the green belt. I mean, that's the thing about the green belt, is there's no signs for it. It's like a completely abstract thing. You wouldn't really know it existed unless you, unless you read some kind of planning documents, you know. Or, you know, saw a kind of planning map. You're never going to see a signpost saying, you're now in the green belt. You know, that doesn't really happen. And so it was only 
really recently that I discovered that that was the Greenbelt. And so I, I lived in New Addington, which is a big housing estate outside Croydon. My family moved there from central London, from Battersea and sort of off the Wandsworth Road. And they moved out to New Addington the year before I was born in 1969. And um, yeah, so I didn't really realise that that was a Greenbelt. And I, but I knew that this countryside was very, very different from, you know, the estate that I was actually living in. And we, where we lived, we lived on the very last road and opposite us were the trees and the fields. So we didn't really feel that part of the estate because we were facing out away from the estate. But we also sort of didn't really feel part of the countryside either because we weren't, you know, we weren't in a village or we weren't like, a, you know, a little kind of farmhouse or something. You know, we are on a housing estate. So weirdly, we sort of felt a bit marooned, I think, as a family on the edge. And it also has to be said that you're quite an insular family. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if there was an opportunity not to talk about things, we would absolutely rush, you know, we would kind of all get trapped in a doorway, desperate to kind of scramble out of any conversation that we might not have wanted to have, really, yeah. And my mum, particularly, was incredibly secretive. There were loads and loads of things about her that I didn't know. And, uh, you know, I only found out after she died that my dad told me. And um... so my mum was disabled. She, uh, she had a cyst on her spine. So this was in the 1950s, when treatment for uh, syringomyelia, as they thought it was, although it sort of turned out it probably wasn't syringomyelia, which is a thing that sort of you get progressively worse and you have more of this. She only really had one of these cysts. And um, they kind of did lots of kind of quite draconian kind of treatments on her in a sort of primitive 50s way. And those treatments sort of ended up leaving her, I think, probably more disabled than she would have been just from the cyst, which is, you know, very sad. And she was able to kind of walk about a bit and then as she, got, she, she kind of got older, she just kind of ended up using a wheelchair for various reasons. Bearing that in mind, bearing her disability in mind, what was it like to, you know, to be living out on the edge of the of the countryside at this point? So this was the 1970s and the 1980s uh, by the time we were living there. And for my mum, it was quite difficult to kind of go out into the countryside because of her wheelchair. It sort of was difficult, although she then got uh, one of those, um, the Invercars, those little blue cars for that for the handicapped, as they were sort of known at the time. Ice blue was the colour, uh, officially. And uh, she used to kind of whiz about in that out into the country and she used to kind of go shopping and stuff. But she used to spend a lot of time driving around the country lanes and that became a kind of bit of an obsession for her and she kind of taught herself all the trees the flowers the birds you know all that stuff that she didn't know because she had an incredibly urban childhood and and sort of you know all of her sort of 20s all live, living in the centre of London she didn't really know any of these things so it was for her it was an amazing release to be able to do this stuff even though she couldn't actually go out physically beyond the car very far I mean we did used to kind of bump about a bit kind of you know go to have picnics and stuff but not kind of exploring quite maybe as much as we would have, you know. And, um, yeah, my dad was really into photography, so he loved going out and taking pictures of everything. And, in fact, to a kind of, like, exhausting kind of, oh, my God, can't we just go on? Why are you taking more pictures of that flower? Um, so, yeah, he was he was kind of hilarious and brilliant. They were kind of very... My parents were, lo- were absolutely lovely. I'm really lucky that I got on so well with my parents. I know loads of people don't get on with, you know, either one or the other or both of them or or maybe they don't even know them you know and I was so lucky that I knew my parents so well and I got on so well with them and they were like at opposite ends of a kind of character spectrum so my mum was this kind of quite ironic sophisticated verbally very sharp 
very quick-witted, kind of incisive, but also kind of quite romantic woman, you know, with all these kind of, you know, she was, you know, she would kind of go weak at the knees about, you know, David Bowie or something. You know, she would be very kind of like, I think she kind of imagined herself as a kind of, you know, chanteurs or something, you know, she kind of, she was kind of always singing. And and, uh, my dad was small, hairy, slapstick, you know, silly, giggling, you know, he was a handyman. And before that, he'd been a lorry mechanic, and so, you know, he was, like, really good with his hands and, you know, not, like, verbally sharp at all, you know. So they were a hilarious kind of duo. They were very, very different. Both very, very funny in different ways. But I think partly because they didn't they didn't sort of slightly get one another all the time. That was another sort of feature of, of my childhood, I think, was that there was this sort of understanding that, that even if you really loved somebody, it wouldn't mean that you knew anything about them or understood them at all. And I think... You know, in a way, when I was writing this book and I was thinking about, you know, their relationship with the green belt and the outside and the place that I grew up, there just seemed to be so much kind of... Our relationship with each other as a family just felt like an amazing kind of metaphor for the place that I grew up and my relationship with that, really. You know, that we always felt slightly on the outskirts of our own lives, in a way, that we didn't really... We were always a bit too shy to kind of fully occupy the centre, you know, and uh, it would never kind of occur to my dad, you know, to ever kind of push himself forward or kind of, you know, to suggest that we might, you know, we might actually own a space or kind of, you know, command a position somewhere. You know, we were a very quiet family who kind of lived on the edges of stuff and were quite happy to do that. You talk about why they moved out there from over in Battersea and it's an interesting story. They're encouraged by some other family members to move out there who then never talked to them. <laughs> yeah, so we had an uncle that lived upstairs, so we moved to this maisonette we had an uncle who lived in the maisonette upstairs and you know I never I have no memories of him really hardly any memories and considering he he was my uncle and he lived above us for about 10 years and then actually we moved we moved then but we only moved down the road literally down the road a bit further down the road to a house council house and we didn't uh, so he was still there I, I barely have any memory of him he never really used to kind of interact with us it was like he let us know that this place existed but wanted nothing to do with us I think there was a slight kind of you know there were three boys your chaotic dad you know mum who was sort of slightly awkward because she was in a wheelchair all those things were probably a bit difficult to deal with you know and they were just a much quieter family you know he was a lot older my mum had eight siblings and he was, you know, the oldest, and so, and she was the second youngest. So there was a huge gap between their ages, and I don't think they knew one another very well. And that kind of, again, was like, you know, our awkwardness kind of writ large. You know, even among her kind of extended family, that didn't, you know, we we were still kind of a bit kind of a, a remove. Yes, yeah, so we never really saw him. It was so weird to have an uncle that lived upstairs that we never saw. It was peculiar. I mean, I you, you saw like all the other names but loads more. You said you've got two brothers and you talk about how very shortly after moving out to this house, one of your brothers develops agoraphobia and it's, it's linked to the move. 
Yeah, absolutely. So my eldest brother was seven when he moved to the when they moved to the housing estate. So he'd grown up third floor of a of a housing block um, just off the Wandsworth Road. You know, he was used to the biggest thing outside space that he'd ever been to really up until that point was Battersea Park so that was sort of the that was the countryside really to him and then they moved they moved out to this estate and he says he remembers really really vividly the day that they moved there and he ran across the road and into the cornfield that was there and he kind of ran into the cornfield and he kind of looked around and there was all this space and there were all these sort of remember seeing like all the details of the of the grass and the like the you know every stalk of of wheat that he could see and he could just see everything like the sheer number and the sheer size of everything and he kind of ended up kind of cowering under a tree and yeah he became agoraphobic which was just terrible and I again that was another mystery in my family I did, I knew there was something up with Ian I knew that there was some reason why I didn't you know he didn't travel around you know and he would was quite evasive about all that stuff and it was only really probably about 10-15 years ago that he sort of that I realised that he was agoraphobic I probably didn't even ask because that wasn't really the kind of thing we do in our family so yeah I was a bit kind of and that was one of the weird processes with this book is that I then interviewed both my brothers that was a kind of fascinating thing to do and I actually quite recommend that as a thing to do with your family is sit them down and actually formally interview them and record it because it is amazing hearing how much stuff they remember about your family that you don't and how their view of things that you think you know about is so different and how quite often they're very contradictory and uh, and you just discover all these new things that you never realise and, and sort of, you know, a different perspective on stuff. And I go, you know, I, mean, I don't know, maybe other families, you know, they talk, maybe they know about this stuff with, you know, with their brothers and sisters and their mum and dad, but I didn't. And interviewing my brothers was absolutely fascinating. I'll totally recommend it to anyone. Although it is kind of extraordinary now, knowing all this stuff that I didn't know beforehand, I feel like I've it was quite a moving experience writing the book because I feel like I uncovered a load of emotional stuff in my family that I didn't know about before and that has you know I I sort of took six months off work to write the book and um, it ended up being quite a kind of melancholy experience sort of being alone with the book and sort of family stories and stuff as well as you know working out the story of the green belt and all that stuff you know it, it, it can be quite sad sort of looking back over those things in great detail it's not you know it's sort of not terribly nostalgic actually a lot of it's very painful and awkward and and not really the sorts of stuff that you necessarily want to share with other people i'm travis elbra you're listening to resonance fm and this is little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture it doesn't help that everybody in the family has secrets and you talk very movingly about how you describe simultaneously being secretly and obviously gay and growing up on this estate at the time. Well, I say, you say the estate that I grew up on, because we sort of felt at the edge of it, I didn't really, I didn't have like a big gang of friends anyway, so there wasn't that. So I never had that kind of peer pressure of other people wanting me to conform. And I always remember sort of not wanting to conform, you know, not wanting to be like, realising that I didn't seem to feel like everyone else 
and then actively not wanting to conform as soon as that became a thing that was obvious that people wanted you to do. And so I had quite a, I had a difficult time at school because I found it difficult fitting in and pretending. There was always a bit of me that thought, you know what, in the future, everything's going to be fine. But at the moment, it's going to be awful. And I, it's so odd that I had that as a thing that I felt when I was growing up. But I really did. And I do think think a lot of that kind of strength that sort of carried me through as a kid when I was being really horrifically bullied was from seeing how my mum dealt with stuff you know she dealt with being disabled you know being kind of you know a woman in that period who was expected to just kind of get on and you know run a house and and be the sort of quiet one you know while she's kind of mega brain amazing kind of woman you know who just happens to have a cyst on her spine and um, seeing the way that she dealt with all those difficulties in her life and the way that she dealt with everything was internalising everything never letting anybody ever show that they'd annoyed her or upset her or that anything had kind of affected her and I kind of I guess I sort of learnt that a bit really so I think I internalised everything and kind of just carry on as if nothing was affecting me or having an emotional effect and I would never ever want to kind of show anyone that I was being emotional and I guess as I've got older that's been quite a difficult thing to break down and I'm still not a particularly emotional person and I'm, I'm only ever emotional in really surprising ways when I'm least expecting it so if I'm expecting to be emotional I won't be but if something catches me completely unawares uh, I will be very emotional so you, I'm usually kind of you know if there's a sad bit in a comedy film that is the moment where I will get upset I will never get upset in something where you know it's meant to be sad um, you also talk very movingly about, well, both your mother and father's deaths, but particularly your mother, who seems to be, you know, to really rage against it. Yeah, I mean, it was it was an awful death, actually. It was it was horrible. So she had um, when I was about ten, she was rushed to hospital and she had a sort of she almost died. She had this internal bleeding, and that was the moment where actually her legs sort of through lack of physiotherapy meant that she couldn't walk. So that sort of finished off her walking, which she could do a bit. And then a couple of years later, my dad nearly died. He had angina. He had a heart bypass. So by the time I was about thirteen, I was used to kind of thinking that my parents were about to die at any given moment but actually they were fine really until sort of I got to my late 20s and my my mum she just became a bit quieter and a bit kind of over the course of a summer really and sort of into the autumn you sort of noticed a change in her she became just a bit a bit smaller and a bit less powerful really than she had been and that was you know that was a very sad thing to notice and she it turned out that she'd um she'd got a pressure sore which a lot of the fluid was draining through and because she had to sit down all the time or either lie down the pressure sore was always like under pressure and she could never really get off it and it felt like the hospital could do nothing for her and also weren't really you could see that there was a a feeling that you know well this is a you know this is a disabled woman is you know in you know it's about 60 odd she's probably going to be quite difficult to save and it felt like she was a bit abandoned really and she was so yeah and she was really angry she went into hospital she was in this huge sort of um, inflated kind of pressure bed where she 
there was jets of air underneath it. So it was a bit like kind of sitting in a jet engine and um, huge noise all the time. And I just spent a lot of time with her in hospital and she was in hospital for about 10, 10 or 11 weeks. And, uh, you know, and I sort of stayed overnight in the hospital, you know, and, and all that stuff. And it was very, very difficult, you know, a horrible, horrible time watching her get more and more frail. And she really, really wanted to go home. She absolutely loved where we lived, you know, that house looking out onto the countryside, you know, nice garden outside. She just wanted to go back there and she wanted to, she knew she was dying. She wanted to die there. And she was so angry that that didn't happen. And I think we all felt terrible that we didn't make that happen. I mean, my dad was very ill at the same time and he was actually in and out of a hospice while she was in hospital. So it was, it was very, you know, it was a re- you know, it was, it was logistically kind of impossible for us. But at the same time, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I've ever quite processed or recovered from that happening and you know feeling like you've let somebody down at their most vulnerable and when they most needed it so yeah that I think has lived with all of us actually is a very difficult thing Whereas my dad, you know, he he had like amazing care. Was you know went to a, a St Christopher's Hospice, and they were they were brilliant. So the contrast there between the way that they died, and you know that he was able to go home at the end, and you know that those things are so different. And I guess you know when your first parent dies, you don't really know what to do, and actually you do do it all wrong. And then when your next parent dies, you're you're like well you know this is what you do unfortunately now I know this is what the drill is you know and it was so different that second time just one more question then and I wanted to talk about researching the the personal parts of the story and you've already mentioned you know that you you interviewed your brothers and that you know obviously delving into a lot of this stuff is is not a it's not a happy story often it's quite depressing and and clearly the process of writing this book has has not necessarily as some people often tritely say it would you know helped you process a lot of this stuff <laughs> but just to finish off researching the place there's lots of scenes in this book where you basically go back and sort of furtively skulk around the undergrowth of, of no Addington. What was it like going back there after after all this time? So, I mean, my eldest brother still lives in New Addington, so I still go there quite a bit. But it was very interesting kind of going... Because I guess I go and see him and I don't go around... I don't go to the edge where we lived. And so doing that, it's amazing how those feelings come right back to you straight away, you know. And that slight kind of sense of awkwardness that I'm going to be found out at any moment or that, you know, around the corner is going to be somebody who's going to start bullying me or... That that somebody's going to point and go, what are you doing there? Why are you crossing the road? You're, you haven't even got a dog. How dare you? You know, I, I, all these kind of weird fears all kind of like came up when I was walking around there. But the more I did it, the more I felt like I belonged there again, actually. And... It is, you know, I don't think I could have written this book had I not moved away from New Addington, and I had lived there for 30 years. But actually, I really, really lost a connection with it. And going back and spending quite a lot of time, you know, with the, all those kind of sights and sounds and things that you, things that I'd forgotten, like you could that you could hear the distant sound of people doing clay pigeon shooting somewhere. Who were they? I don't know. I never saw them. Or that there would be Spitfires flying over from Biggin Hill, which was sort of nearby. All these kind of 
weird things that you that I totally forgotten were all still there and all still happening and all these you know trees that I you know remember from you know walking around as a kid you know it's extraordinary to kind of see all that stuff and feel that things are still going on and that or indeed things you never knew like you didn't know that there was deer Oh yeah, no, that is strange. Yeah, that the yeah talking to I spoke to an amazing couple of park rangers and they were telling me all about the you know the the burned out cars that they dragged out of the woods and all these kind of things and you know Japanese knotweed and things and um, yeah they were they were talking about you know because they put all of these um, all of these fences up and they was like oh does that stop people going into this area and they're like no no stop the deer you know browsing it all off and I was like what do you mean the deer and it turned out yeah there were all these deer that are kind of you know, just there in the woods right near where I lived and I, I had no idea. All this time I thought there was something kind of amazing and magical going on in the woods in a kind of, my imagination would run riot there and all of those children's books like Stick of the Dump and things meant so much to me because they really brought the woods alive as this amazing place. I would sort of think about them and get very excited about the idea of the woods and going out over there. It never occurred to me that actually there were extraordinary things, you know, that, that I never saw there and I was quite shocked actually when they told me that I thought well the, this has made me think about where I grew up in an entirely different way all over you know I I, oh, I don't know you never really know what you're going to discover when you start asking people about about things you think you know all about and then it turns out they've got a completely other angle on it and um, this book for me actually was was that all the time more or less everywhere I turned everything I thought I knew turned out I only knew a tiny bit of even my own life that's a perfect point for us to finish. So I've been talking to John Grindrod. We've been talking about Outskirts, Living Life on the Edge of the Green Belt, which is out now from Scepter Books. John, thank you so much for coming back and telling me about it. Oh, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.